Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. As in the case of the Mathean genealogy, our understanding of the summoning of the twelve apostles in Matthew chapter 10 depends heavily upon the meaning of names. Not only their meaning, but their placement within Matthew's list and their language of origin taken in context of the broader narrative, all of which is amplified by the importance of the number 12 as a metaphor for the tribes of Israel. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 278 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard and I were chatting this morning about the Matthean genealogy and how this section of Matthew chapter 10 is reminiscent of that text. And it's important, as always, to remember that these aren't just names. These are names that are placed in a certain location, chosen for a certain reason. These are names that come from different languages, which has significance reminiscent of Paul's juxtaposition of Greek and Aramaic in his letter to the Galatians. And in this sense, we can't just breeze over the first four verses of chapter 10. We have to take each name seriously and really push the text to understand what's going on. An author is making a list for a reason. The elements are in that list for a reason, and they're in the order they're in for a reason. And you can't just gloss over it and assume that there is no reason, that it's just a bunch of stuff that Matthew was writing, and then he included his laundry list and his grocery list and then kept writing. No, he put in this list for a reason. He can just say, there were a bunch of kings who came before him, or there are a bunch of disciples, and then move on. Like, why would Matthew force us to use our time to read this. Now, I also want people to think about this. Matthew was written to be read aloud. It was not assumed that a person was going to be reading along and would skip over that part and then keep going. When you're reading aloud, you can't just say yada, 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 and then keep going. You're not allowed. You have to read every word. These names are taking up literal time and space as one is hearing the gospel proclaimed. So I'm happy, Father, that we can spend some time to go through these names and try to flesh out why list the names, why these names, why this many names, why are the names in this order? Those are important questions if we want to understand. In the same way you and I have always talked about why is chapter 9 after chapter 8, why is chapter 8 after chapter 7, why is this name after this name, why is this name included in the list? Why is this name included twice in the list? Those are essential 
for understanding what Matthew is saying. When we read Matthew, the basic point that you and I are always looking at, Father, is why is the author saying what he's saying in the way that he's saying it? Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The first thing I want to say is that this summoning in verse 1 of chapter 10 comes on the heels of verse 37 and 38, where the Lord was lamenting the shortage of workers and imploring his father to send out workers into his harvest to teach. He was lamenting the fact that the people were shepherdless. And so now, as we pivot in verse 1 of chapter 10, he's summoning the 12 and giving them authority. In other words, giving them the authority of the instruction of his father, which is inscribed. So now I'm giving you the tablets of the law. They hold their own authority. You now are responsible to carry this authority out to the nations, to cast out false teaching, unclean spirits, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, meaning that through the sharing of this teaching, by reaching those who do not have a shepherd, those who are lost, those who are despairing, by reaching them with this instruction, you are creating for them the possibility of life under God's care through his instruction. And in this sense, diseases and sickness are erased by God's teaching. I mean, disease and sickness are threats to human life, and the teaching is sent to secure human life. I agree, Father. It's significant, first of all, that this does follow on the last two verses where he said to his disciples, we need workers. And then immediately he says, que proskalesamenos, and calling them to himself. It's one word in Greek. He tells them, hey, we need people to do this work. And then you used a great word. He summoned them and he gave them this power. So the main verb in that clause is give. He gave them this power. And what I think is fascinating about this is the sickness and disease are the things that are against human life that need to be removed so that people can understand the gospel. But even more than that, Jesus has been the one who's been amazing all the crowds by his being able to heal people and remove demons. People are all amazed by Jesus, amazed by Jesus, amazed by Jesus, and they weren't listening to what he was saying. People would come to Jesus to see the healings, and then they would ignore his teaching. Jesus is trying to place the emphasis not on himself, the person, but on the word that he's teaching. And he's going even further here because he makes it entirely not about him. He gave them the power to heal. The point is not the healing and the casting out of demons. It's the teaching. So he says, okay, fine. If they're all going to make this about me, I'm going to give this ability, this power, this exousia to my disciples, and then it can be even less about me. It's not power in the way we think of power. It's the power to do something. That's what authority is here. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee. We'll stop there for just a minute. There's a lot to talk about. 
the first thing that jumps out at me right away is this word protos, the first. Now, I unfortunately, and I'm sure many of our listeners have the same advantage, I have the advantage of having already read ahead in Matthew. And I know that this word, protos, is pejorative, because according to Jesus in chapter 20 of the Gospel of Matthew, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So to be called the first, or as it is sometimes translated in English, the chief of the apostles, is not good news for Peter. First of all, it's strange. When you have a list of people, why do you have to say the first one is the first? I know it's the first, because it's the first one you said, Jesus. I understand that. So why the first? I think what you're saying is correct. It brings up this idea that he is the first, which puts extra pressure on him. You are the first. Okay, now let's see how well that goes. And we, we know how well it goes. But Matthew is putting this word in for a reason. If you want to say that it's the first, without just having it be the first in the list, then you're trying to make a point. Another point here is, why does Matthew have to give two names to this first person? Why Simon and Peter? What's important about that? It's significant that, first of all, the first name, Simon, Shimon, is either Hebrew or Aramaic, meaning hearing, and Peter, Petros, which is Greek, meaning rock. You have listening and stone juxtaposed here, because that's one of the problems. Stone is unmoving. Stone is not something that can perceive. A heart of stone is one that doesn't think clearly, that doesn't perceive clearly, that doesn't make good decisions because it's unable to perceive. Whereas Shimon, Simon, hearing is the one that is able to perceive and follow the instruction that it hears. So we have a juxtaposition here of hearing and hard-headedness, hardness, stone, right off the bat, this is the number one. The number one embodies the desire to hear, but the inability to act. This name, Richard, always reminds me of Psalm 115. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have eyes, but cannot see. They have mouths, but cannot speak. I mean, this famous passage about idols, about statues made of stone. God desires a heart that is made of flesh, that is malleable, not a heart of stone. You can't inscribe wisdom on a heart of stone. It's closed to wisdom. A stone can also function as a metaphor for human structures in the Bible. So we have to be careful not to extract an abstract meaning for stone. It always depends on how it functions in a particular passage. And here I think you nailed it. You have Israel, which desires to hear, but at the same time in the prophets and in the Pentateuch is repeatedly hard-hearted or stubborn and unwilling to hear. And so now God is taking this metaphor, Simon, who is called Peter, and literally pairing him with a Greek, with a Gentile, Andrew, Andreas, his brother. It's very powerful. You didn't listen to me that the nations were your brother. And now, right at the outset of the 12 tribes, I am naming the second among you 
as your Gentile brother. Right. So it is interesting that we have the name Simon, who is called Peter. So he is Simon. He is that Jewish name, and his brother is that one with the Greek name. That name, Andreas, comes from the Greek word andros, which means man, not human, but man, specifically a male human. It is, in Greek terms, virtuous and strong and heroic because to be manly is to be superior. This is the way that Greek virtue functioned. He is paired with this manly person. So you have the one who hears, the one who listens, who is also a rock, but a rock is not a good thing. And the strength of the manly one is also not necessarily going to be a good thing because of the way that Greek virtue is undermined, but also hardness and strength in a worldly sense, like the earthly king, like Alexander the Great, is going to be undermined. That's what we saw in the genealogy in the first chapter. The genealogy in the first chapter was undermining the strength of the run-of-the-mill ordinary kings that you see throughout Scripture. This is undermining the strength and the hardness of stone, of the man, and it's a shot against this idea of what is strong and virtuous. And at the same time, insofar as Andreas is from the Greek term andros, which means man, it also implies that Peter, the Jew, is the brother of men, other men, irrespective of their nation and their tribe. It's very powerful, this playing with names. That's why I said earlier, Richard, it reminds me very much of Galatians when you have the Greek word for father and the Aramaic word for father pushed up against each other in an epistle where we repeatedly hear Paul stress that there's no difference between Jew and Greek and that through the gospel instruction, all may call the God of Abraham their father. The same thing is going on here. It's beautiful. And I want to repeat this point. I don't want it lost on our listeners that we're talking about the 12 who represent the 12 tribes. So there is a broadening of God's tent in the names of the 12. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Once again, we have this fateful name, Richard, Iakovos, which is from the Hebrew Yaakub, which we translate as Jacob very often, the son of Zebedee. Now, Zebedee in Greek, Zebedeos, is from the word Zebadiah, which means the Lord has bestowed. So James is the son of the Lord's generosity towards Israel. And that's a factual statement. If you look at all of these characters in the genealogy who were not faithful to the Lord's promise, they still enjoyed the bestowing of the Lord's grace. And John, his brother, Jacob of the Lord bestows. It's almost a sentence there with the syntax a little scrambled, but you understand that there's this granting of a gift and then it's no surprise when the next brother is John, which is Johanna, which comes from Chen, which is grace. 
there's this favor that's given. And so Matthew sets up attention here. On the one hand, we have the great potential of listening, of God's bestowing, of the favor that the Lord shows to people. But on the other hand, we have the stone, we have the manly one. And then Jacob, of course, should be good as the son of Isaac, but is not as good as he could have been. So we have the disappointment already programmed in here. One thing that we didn't mention earlier is that up to this point, these men were called matitev, the disciples or the students. But here is the first time when they're called i apostoli, the ones who were sent out. There's a shift that's happening here that's even bigger than we mentioned at the beginning. Jesus is moving from simply teaching his students. He's now given his students the ability to be teachers. They're the ones who teach. They're the ones who cast out the demons. They're doing the things that Jesus was doing up till now. Everything that Jesus was doing up till now. But whether they're going to be able to carry it out or not in a faithful way, following the will of the Father in the same trust, pistis, that Jesus has, that is a tension that Matthew sets up from the very beginning here because it's hard to say exactly which direction they're going to go. Are they going to be able to carry it out or are they not going to be able to carry it out? Are they going to follow Jesus's word, Jesus's teaching better than the lepers that we saw before? Or are they going to fall and betray the teaching that they were entrusted with? Well, we know from the genealogy that Jacob failed. Jacob Israel failed and ended up in captivity and exile, and the only hope was the gift of Matthew's gospel. And to the extent that already in verse 2, we hear the echo of God's gracious treatment of the line of Jacob, and we recall how they still failed and ended up in exile. To the extent that the genealogy is still functional in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 2 is a kind of foreshadowing of yet another stumbling. But this time, Richard, the Gentiles are included. So in a way, Matthew is saying, look, the law was given to cause Israel to stumble, and now we're bringing the Gentiles in. And we're putting Andrew right next to Peter and putting them with James and John, and they're going to stumble again, which means that now all can receive the law. In some ways, I feel like Matthew is setting up the possibility that Jacob could redeem himself, because this James here, I mean, we get confused in English. Because of accidents of history, we translate Jacob as James in the New Testament, and that's a long story, but it's really Jacob. So when a hearer hears Jacob, the son of the Lord bestows, I can't help but think of Isaac. It's almost we have a new Jacob from a new Isaac that hopefully is going to be able to perform his duty better. Matthew sets us up with this kind of hope. Now we'll see how it ends up. We know it doesn't end up so great. But Matthew sets up this tension, and this chapter is key for understanding what the tension is going to be, because Jesus is turning around and saying, this is not all about me. It's never been all about me. Everyone's misunderstood it. I'm going to force everyone to understand that it's not all about me. But then once he does, he sets this mechanism in motion. Is the mechanism going to be spreading the teaching as it's supposed to, or is it going to fall away from the teaching because of a lack of trust? This is key 
in the narrative of the literature for this shift between Jesus being the sole teacher to his students becoming the teachers as they are sent out as apostoli, as apostles. That's a good place to stop, because next week in verse 3, we'll see how Jesus the teacher is sending out his disciples to counteract the militaristic endeavors of Philip of Macedon and his son, Alexander the Great, which becomes clear in the choice of names in the New Testament. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.